Hello, and welcome to the first ever virtually co-hosted episode of Jowl Over the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana. On this episode, we will analyze Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. This candy-colored film mixes beauty and danger in a revolutionary way. A groundbreaking film for the jolly subgenre, Blood and Black Lace includes themes of vanity, vice, and of course, murder. My guest today is a frequent contributor to the podcast. He is a musician, a fellow podcaster, as well as an aspiring filmmaker. Please welcome back Wade Brown. Hello, I'm back. You can't get rid of me. You're back via Skype. Yeah, because we are all quarantined. There's a little thing. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of it. Like a very underground. No one has heard of it. <laughs> it's a very underground virus. <laughs> so for this episode, we were unable to record in person. So we're just doing it via Skype. Listeners, please bear with us in case there's any technical difficulties. Wade. Since you're quarantined and you're self-isolating, as everyone should be, have you been watching anything interesting or fun? Any recommendations? Yeah. I found an old... Apparently, I bought a season of Face Off a long time ago. Didn't know that, so I watched that because I love special effects and stuff like that. It's really cool, especially with this genre. I've recently got into this weird space show called Farscape. I am like... 15 episodes in and i started like two days ago so yeah there's that and uh, i've been watching some arrow releases i got from their flash sale the main one i'm watching right now is the bloodthirsty trilogy which is pretty much toho's uh the people who did the studio did godzilla movies they're doing horror in the 60s like hammer horror good example the one i watched recently was vampire doll which is very cool awesome yeah i bought some movies but i do not want to spoil what i bought because they will be future episodes you've got a good stash i know that so for me i have not been watching a ton of stuff truly i've been adjusting to working from home but i have been watching tiger king And that has just taken over my entire life. I can't picture watching anything else that's as interesting, as crazy. It's the perfect distraction for what's going on in the world. It's it's pure Americana. Pure American dream right here. You could be a homosexual tiger uh, zoo enthusiast that has a polygamous relationship with two guys. One's (laughs) missing all their teeth. The other one is like... Someone missing an arm, someone yeah, both of their legs. Oh, there's there's sex cults. There's yeah, uh, people- that has been just taking over my life the past week or so. I am a huge fan of true crime, and I had first heard about Joe Exotic through last podcast on the left, really before the craziest stuff went down. Crazy and entertaining, and yeah. I recommend it's a seven-part docu-series on netflix and you say it's a true crime documentary but if we're being real the actual crime is the least interesting thing about the actual documentary it's the life of of joe exotic the crime is very like yeah that's interesting too but really he ran for governor oh and i was watching uh reanimator and dolls because sadly we lost Stuart gordon that's another yeah. thing I forgot. We did, I did a Stuart Gordon marathon the other day. Yes. Rest in peace, Stuart Gordon. Well, while we're on the topic of famous film directors, let me give a little synopsis. It's the first Baba film on Jalo of the Month Club. Woo! 
Here we go. Blood and Black Lace centers around a mass killer that brutally murders the models of a scandalous fashion house in Rome. Some of the murders are committed in a desperate attempt to obtain a scandal-revealing diary. It's a huge cast, and it's important to note that since it is such an ensemble cast of both male and female characters, it does not fall into either of the main Jalo themes of M. Jalo or F. Jalo. There are like 15 people in this cast. Yes, a huge ensemble cast. I think the most notable actor is Cameron Mitchell, who has been in a bunch of films. The Countess Christina is played by Eva Bartok. She's a famous actress as well. But there are many, many characters. And frankly, if we name their names, you're probably not going to remember who was who. So we'll just say blonde or brunette for the most part. I don't don't remember character names. So... (laughs) The Inspector, you remember him. Yes, Robot Man. (laughs) Inspector Sylvester. These are the American names, too. There are Italian names. In Italian, the film is translated to Six Women for the Murderer. The entire film was originally written in English in order to allow for easier exportation to the United States. Also very spoilery with that name. Right, it's pretty spot on. (laughs) Although, technically... Also, this episode will contain spoilers, so you will want to watch Blood and Black Lace before listening. I watched it on an exclusive restoration by Arrow Video. Wade watched it on Prime Video. Yes, Prime, just so you know, there's two versions of it. There's one from the 60s, and there's one from 2018. They're both the same movie. I watched the 2018 version. That might be a restoration version. You'll know because it's got the the yellow poster art. That's how you know. That's the version I watched. Better quality. Yes. And later in this episode, we will dive into the world of vanity and fashion and fears and vice. The theme for this episode is how the fashion industry and the horror genre intersect. The fashion industry is built on repression, as far as repressing the ugly, the imperfect, gross realities of the human body. So there's a lot of similar aspects between modeling and fashion and the horror genre. Yes. Blood and Black Lace was filmed in 1963 and released in 1964. It created instant tropes in the Jalo subgenre, a cloaked killer, black gloves, trench coat, a mask. The mask in this film is very influential. I mean, you, if most recently, uh, Watchmen, the show, but also Watchmen, the graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Uh, also, the Watchmen movie by Zack Snyder, in my opinion, mm-hmm. one of the only good Zack Snyder films. There's another DC, there's a character on DC, uh, DC Universe called The Question. Basically, the outfits are ripped yeah, off. Yeah, spot on. Very heavily and, influenced. And if you are a big fan of DC, uh, if you saw Birds of Prey, you'll know that Renee Montoya, Rosie Perez's character, will eventually become The Question. So, oh, is that yeah. a spoiler? Uh, no, it's not, not in Birds of Prey, not in that version. But there was a version okay. where it's Vic Sage, and then it becomes Renee Montoya film was made in the span of about six weeks towards the end of 1963 and it was also filmed in technicolor which of course it was because have you seen the colors and the reds in this film oh this is uh the most technicolor technicolor ever the opening is wonderful i loved all of the individual shots of the cast 
I thought that was really neat. You don't see that done very often. I mean, maybe like in television, but not often in movies. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's probably my favorite thing in a movie. I'm not saying like the movie's bad or anything like that. I'm saying the opening was my favorite thing. It got me in. It's got the great lighting, introduces the cast, uh, some of the sexiest music. Oh, the trumpets. Oh, some of the sexiest music, which was done by Carlo Rusticelli. Yeah, like so classic. He did a lot, he did a lot of films, right? He's a pretty some, popular composer. I did some research on him, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Too many movies to count. It's like <laughs> hundred. It's like a hundred movies within like a from like the fifties to the eighties. So okay. that's his thirty years of career. He. He's good. A lot of yeah. sexy trumpets. Sexy and classy. <laughs> very, very classy. So we have the opening where it's all of the cast members and it's the florals and the darks and the shadows. And that's like very iconic and represented throughout this whole film. I love the interiors where you're like looking down a hallway and it has all of the different like layers of curtains and shadows and lights. And it's just so dreamy and surreal. That's just one of my favorite things about you're, films. It's just like you're beautiful. Talk- you're talking about the scene with uh, Faruza Balk looking person with the short hair, right? No, I mean, just many, there's just many yes. scenes throughout the fashion house where people are, you know, just walking around and just the depth, how Baba represents depth in a way yes. that maybe may not be there. He does like layers of curtains and fabrics <clears throat> and the mannequins builds layers. I found that would be very interesting. And I feel like that was a team up between, well, Bava probably oversaw it, but I think the set design really helps a lot. Yeah. But also, I think the cinematographer did great. Uh, the yeah, cinematographer yeah. was Ubaldo Terzano, which this isn't the first movie that Jail of the Month Club has done that he's worked on. He also did the cinematography work for Deep Red, which we've done. And also he's done like Bava's Black Sun, which is iconic. He also did Paul Morrissey's uh, Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. Not really the most uh, great movies, but the cinematography is cool. I'll say that. You know, I think the cinematography with, that makes those layers work. It may, it paints the picture yeah. very well. And speaking of like painting a picture, the opening scene, not just the opening of the film with the, the cast montage, but the opening scene in the woods where... It's the woman walking in the red coat and it's dark woods and you kind of have the she's walking in like a lit area with the fog. That looks like a painting. It makes me think 60s horror. Like the hammer horror kind of look of like very wooded area with the fog. A little little gothic, although this is not, you know, his this is not his gothic movie or his like gothic giallo. Yeah, it's not gothic. That scene, that scene is very like dreamy and picturesque and... That's probably the most dreamy, probably the most gothic looking thing in the movie. And it's in the beginning. It's a it's weird because it doesn't set the tone for the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is very elegant architecture. This one's very like dark and rainy and foggy. It's just not a good night to get murdered pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. And this is kind of a a popular tidbit of information, but I, I don't know if you're aware, but. Bava did not have a large budget for this film, so he couldn't afford to have a camera dolly for the panning shots. So they used a children's red wagon. They would put the camera on a wagon and drag it side to side. That's cool. Very inventive. 
Yeah. I wonder how they did, like... You couldn't tell. I mean, there was no difference in the quality between if they used a camera dolly and a children's wagon. Yeah. This, I think the cinematography is really solid. It's For this movie, what makes it great is, and I think this is the strongest thing about the movie, is the style. I feel like everything has come together. The set design, the lighting, the cinematographer, whoever blocked the scenes. Like, a lot of things <laughs> really... A lot of things really work. But even meticulous things that... You'll notice, I noticed while watching it, is the use of certain colors in almost every scene. There's a touch of red in almost every single scene, whether it's the woman's, we were talking about that scene in the rain, in the fog. She's got that, the rain, the first shot is that sign that's red. Mm-hmm. You have her, her trench coat is, her raincoat is red. The telephone is red. The diary is red. Very cohesive. It, it's whether your brain realizes it while you're watching it, of course, after, if you're looking at pictures or posters, like, it's very obvious, like, these pops of red are, that's his thing, that's the movie, like, that's what this movie is known for, it's, like, these brilliant, vibrant pops of red, but it's so cohesive and yeah. subtly done at some spots, and you don't even realize it. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's some that are obvious, but there's some subtle ones, like, when the first get established to the investigator and he's talking to everyone and stuff like that you'll see like a red curtain or a red drape or a red rug or something like that there's a scene where uh it's the scene where the killer reveals the notepad and you'll see in the bookcase there's like these like not bright red but subtly red books on the bookcase so i feel like that was very meticulous i don't know if that was on purpose <laughs> i feel like it is but also it could be something where it's not on purpose and that's just how it was designed speaking of the bookcase that is one of the earlier kills in this film i mentioned the italian translation there's six deaths so within the 89 minute runtime of this film there's one death approximately every 15 minutes or so which is pretty good for being under an hour and a half this is where spoilers really come in place guys if you haven't stopped listening and watched the film by now, now is the time to do it. So the first kill is a model named Isabella, who is the one that was in the woods with the red trench coat. And this is probably one of the more violent and sexualized murders. She's strangled, which that's known to be a very sexual, intimate way to kill someone. And then she is dumped into a closet in the fashion house amongst a pile of clothes. So that's saying something about the film and that she's disposable just like these clothes are and she's in the back of the closet where you know clothes you don't really care about you just throw in the back of the closet i'll hang it up later and the countess christina who is the person that runs the fashion house she's the one that finds her the countess is one of the more prominent characters in the film although i think mostly everyone has like equal screen time but she is mourning over the death of her husband who was in a car accident recently but she is kind of running the entire fashion show and she knows all of these models and that's how you know she knows everyone next we have the blonde who is killed in the antique shop we're talking about architecture and set design that place looks amazing there's even yeah. some great there's some great teases of the killer disappearing, uh, and she gets killed with the the coolest sculpture. She gets like, killed co- with an antique, and it's sort of a medieval steel glove or like a metal glove that has spikes on it that kind of look like snake like snake. Um, yeah, it's got like three. Teeth. It's got like three like 
spikes on it and looks like yeah. a weird back loofah, you know, like a you know loofah you <laughs> love slash snake head slash something you would scratch your back with. Yeah, back scratcher. But exactly. And <laughs> the killings are becoming like more sexual because whether it was intentional or not, it's it's so hard to know when like things are done. You're, you you want to think that there's a deeper meaning with things, especially me. I'm all, like, always analyzing things to the extreme. But her shirt is ripped, so it's the kills are becoming more sexualized and more brutal and, and more brutal. Yes. Next, we have another blonde who is killed. There's a diary, the red diary that has information about all of it's, these characters. It's the MacGuffin. Of the, the blonde the- takes the diary home and. There's some stuff in there about her, so she rips it up and throws it in the fireplace. The killer shows up yeah. looking for... The diary. Yeah, and the scene that you mentioned with the bookshelf. So he writes yes. on a notepad, or he or she. Yeah, he inter- it's interesting, like, he interrogates, or she, uh, interrogates, <laughs> I love the notepad, I love the design. It makes me think of Chamber of Secrets from Harry Potter, I don't know why. There's a but really... That- Full screen grab of that. That's Interrogates her. It's like, you gotta give me. And she keeps on saying, I burned it. I burned it. And then there's a chase scene, which is very brutal and aggressive. And eventually she ends up getting her face burned, which says a lot about the expectations of being beautiful because she makes her living based on her beauty. And now her face is just completely melted and mangled. And her moneymaker went bankrupt. Literally, yeah, literally her yeah. money maker. While <laughs> while the while the investigators are in there, there's one little thing about the investigators. I was a little like, what? Like they go in there and they kind of ignore it. The bookshelf is on the ground and books everywhere. They totally ignore it. Right. I don't know like why. There's a struggle. <laughs> there's a little tension there because they're breaking in while he's the killer is dragging her body before she gets killed. Her body up the stairs. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. Then shortly after that, there's a brunette who finds that blonde dead in her trunk, and she drags her body inside of her house. This was by far the most confusing scene to me. It was very confusing. I guess she didn't want to be framed for it, but it makes it look worse when you move the evidence. And she has, like, a butler who's just, like, totally nonchalant, like, (laughs) I was thinking, is he the killer? Because he was just, like... He didn't, it was not phased, she was sweating. He wasn't like, why are you sweating? We also failed to mention that there are men in this movie. Yes. There are, what, four or five men that are currently being locked <clears throat> up in jail? Yeah, there's four or five men and the two male investigators. One's uh, the antique store owner, so the woman that was killed in the antique store. Was he the one that was like, I can't come, I'm sick, I can't come. He was on something. Yeah. Um, there's Max, who is, he's kind of an older gentleman that yes. knows the women. Then there's a boyfriend of the brunette that drug the body inside. Yeah. There was a the guy who was. The one that's like epileptic. Oh, or... yeah. Yeah, the epileptic. That was one of the scariest things I've seen in yeah. the movie. So while all these murders are going on, eventually all of the suspects, which are the men, get locked in jail. And then the killer shows up, and you're like, wait, what? The killer shows up at the woman that dragged the body, and she's like, yeah. Like, wait, wait, all the men are locked up. Wait a minute, hold on. Is it Sylvester? But then you're like, Sylvester has, like, such a robot jaw. Like, he looks like Carl Drago. Not Carl Drago. Ivan Drago from Rocky Four, Not Carl Drago from Game of Thrones. <laughs> he has, 
It's like, if he dies, he dies. Yeah, and the brunette who drags the body inside, she ends up being suffocated with a sofa cushion. So that's, like, a less violent murder than the rest of the killings, which is... It stood out to me while I was watching it. It was a very subdued, but there's a reason why it was subdued. Because it's revealed that the Countess was the killer. And you're like, what? Crazy, because you think, no, there's no way that the Countess dragged that body up the stairs... Then they do a nice little reveal um, when they're giving back to possessions of the notepad and it's Max's notepad. And like, wait, hold on. Is he covering up for her? Is that what's going on? He's covering up for her. So then it's revealed that there are two killers. It's Max and Countess Christina. Max and the Countess conspired to kill her husband in that car crash and split his inheritance. Some of the victims found out about this. They found out that they were sleeping together or there was dirt about them in the notebook. So then they had to kill these people that found out about their plan. Max had planned to frame the Countess for this next murder that we're going to talk about, which we should just talk about now. It's the short-haired model that gets drowned in the bathtub. It's very, the the Faruka Balk uh, looking one. Uh, It's very, or the... uh... Uh, Audrey Horn looking one. Uh, <laughs> it's very, they hard cut on this. It's a very abrupt cut to like this person getting drowned. Like what? And it's telling with all the kills where it looks like the, if it's Max the killer, he's very sexualized, very brutal with it. But with Christina, she smothers them with the sofa pillow. She can't look at their face. She drowns the other one. Can't look at her face kind of like ashamed while rel- while Max probably relishes in it. It's very interesting. You could tell the difference between who's the killer by that. Yeah, and Max basically sends Countess to kill the last victim, which is the short hair model who gets drowned. Christina realizes this after she falls off the roof of escaping that house after killing her. She falls off the roof and is left for dead by Max. And then you, there's a shot of Max, like, counting the, the diamonds, like, breaking into her house and, like, stealing all of her stuff. We also got to talk about, like, how some of the windows are purple. Like, there's purple lighting in the house. Like, what? I'm just kidding. That's a nice little thing I noticed. <laughs> uh, also, but... I noticed but it, too, but it was cool. But there, that is a weird house because there is a, a secret door behind the bookcase. Countess's house. Yeah, yeah. So when she comes to, she does her aha moment where she sneaks back into her house, confronts Max, comes to the realization that he was just using her for her money and her dead husband's money. And then in typical Jallo or mystery thriller horror movie fashion, the two killers embrace each other and you hear a gunshot lingers on them. You don't know who gets shot. And then it it's Max. Max gets shot dead. And now the sixth and final victim in Blood and Black Lace is not a woman. It's a man who was one of the two killers. Yeah, there's also, like, ambiguity, because I had to watch the ending again, because I was very confused. She, like, lays next to him at the end. So, I don't know. Well, she makes the call. But then she lays next to him, and, you know, she fell off the balcony, so it could come off as she has, like, a mortally wounded kind of concussion, 
Or she could be like, I'm tired of this. Not. I hope she lives and gets all yeah. the money. <laughs> it's a nice ending to where, like, she could have died or she could have lived. All I know is the detective did nothing. No. He did not solve the case. He did not crack the case. Damn it, Sylvester. Typical. <laughs> Typical giallo. Clueless investigators, clueless policemen. But this one was a little more stern than the future Jolly movies, because this is like the predecessor for Jolly films. This is like the, the the godfather, the grandfather of all these Jolly films. A lot of the ones later on get more personality in these investigators. This one's just stern, straight to the point. I want the answers, damn it. I, I don't know if it's I think it's, it was the dub, but he just it was just like just a block of wood. It was originally written in English, and some of the actors were not American, and English is not their first language, so some of them were scripts phonetically, so it wasn't the smoothest. Yeah, as someone who has, uh, in one of my shorts I've done, where the audio, it was the chair where the audio was not usable, and I had to ADR and do voiceover on everything, I'm going to tell you now. Voiceover and dubbing is super hard to do sometimes because yeah. you'll get the natural performance. You get someone reading right. in an isolated room with a nice microphone. It's hard to get the emotion sometimes. Well, that seemed to cover most of the film. I mean, it has gorgeous cinematography, brutal kills. Mario Bava, he's the godfather of Jalo. Yeah, I will also say about the movie is while the story is. Not the most complex story. It's This movie is very style over substance. It's more of a innovation than it is like supposed to be. It's not the most complex mystery. Let's no. just say that. It's no Knives Out or, you know, like, or, or I'll just go more, shallow films that are more complex. Like, A Deep Red is a little more complex than this movie is. But it's all about the style, and that's what stands out the most to me. Yeah, this I mean, I would recommend this film. I think that Arrow Video did a fantastic job with restoring this film. The special features were really good. The packaging, of course, is amazing. So if you catch an Arrow Video sale, definitely buy this one. Buy anything Arrow, pretty much. We are not sponsored by Arrow. No, we love Arrow. But please, if you want to sponsor Jow the Month Club, Diana's not going to say no. No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't, although I did buy a ton <laughs> recently, but I would love to fill those gaps in the collection. So Blood and Black Lace is obviously a film that centers around a fashion house and fashion and beautiful people. The theme of this episode, I wanted to dissect the cross-section of horror and fashion, taking the most gorgeous things you can think of and the most grotesque things you can think of. I did a little bit of research, but not much, just because I do follow the fashion industry. I love art. I love fashion. MSGM recently came out with a Dario Argento-inspired line. You probably saw me post about it on Instagram. I'm a huge fan of that line as well. The relationship between horror and high fashion is a long-established one. Blood and Black Lace takes a voyeuristic approach to murder and fashion. This is very apparent when it comes to the polished cast. They're the first faces that you see and you notice that they're all beautiful, very put together. The pristine exterior of high society, but underneath everyone has secrets and isn't who they seem. 
one could compare the mannequins in this film to the female body. Blood and Black Lace is the perfect counterpoint between glamour and the grotesque. To Italian filmmakers, America was the land of color and excess. Within the giallo subgenre, many films take on horror was stylish and bold to the point of being surreal. So you have films like Suspiria, where it's very dreamlike, beautiful, bold, stylized. Every woman was glamorous. Every man was dressed to the nines. Every American was a famous author or fashion designer or a musician. Classic Argento. Every leading man is an artist of Yeah, some... they're either like an author that's also shadowing as a p- pianist. It's a... Uh, <laughs> Very it's multifaceted. A cl- it's a classic shallow job. Yeah, yeah. I want, a, I want a shallow job, damn it. Yeah, and Italian directors, they weren't afraid to mix high and low culture in their films, especially regarding fashion. There's always, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Dario Argento. You know, you have like Inferno, where it's a very stylized film. The costuming is gorgeous. Like you have the the scene where the girl is like holding the cat and she has like the hair and the makeup and it's just like she's beautiful. Then there's just demonic scenes and brutal murder. And it's just such a cross section within those those early Italian films. And there are other ways in which the fashion world and the horror genre are intertwined. They're both obsessed with contorting women's bodies. That was on display in the Suspiria remake. I mean, that's like one of the newer body horror films that I can think of where it's like gross and disgusting the way that these women's bodies are put on display and literally contort it. A lot of horror films tend to focus on femininity and the more scarier aspects like Carrie or Ginger Snaps. Also, in horror films, youth is sacred. You get movies that are about obsession with staying young, demonic children, teenage slasher flicks, which are all about if you're not a virgin, you're going to die. There's villains lusting after eternal youth. Fountain of youth myth. You know, a lot yeah, like of villains want that. Like bathing in virgin's blood. I mean, that's a very, very common theme. And then some would say that models have a lot in common with zombies. Like they're very skeleton-like and they're walking in unison, like marching down Mindless. a runway. Like There's also vampires. There's a lot of blood-sucking, like using someone, like a leech. Like some Yeah, people... like backstabbing. I didn't particularly love this movie, but Neon Demon, that's completely about fashion and it's about backstabbing and getting to the top. Yeah, I can totally see that, how that could be translated to that. Oh, yeah. I forgot Neon Demon existed. (laughs) Of course, there's the opposite where horror has bled into the fashion world. There's a fashion company called Rodarte who has championed horror movies for years They even have their own horror film called Woodshock, which came out about three years ago. It's released by A24. Louis Vuitton sent models down the runway in Stranger Things t-shirts. Calvin Klein's entire spring 2018 line was based on the American Nightmare Cinema. 
these huge brands like Calvin Klein dipping their feet into the world of <laughs> horror, which I think is totally cool. It's two things that I really love. So it's it's really interesting comparing the two different industries. So while we are on the topic of fashion and horror and vanity, do you have any flavors of the month? I only have one. Uh, this is actually surprisingly hard for me because I'm not really into fashion and stuff like that. But I'm keeping with the Wade theme of a Tales from the Crypt episode that will tie in. I'm gonna I'm gonna stretch this gimmick out until like we find you. I think the goal for you is to find a movie I cannot compare a Tales from the Crypt episode with. That should be your goal when picking these movies when I'm, I'm the guest. But I'm gonna do Tales from the Crypt season four. It's an episode called. Beauty Rests. Uh, it stars Mimi Rogers. It's very about like this older actress, like probably in her thirties, not older, like you know, super old, but like, she's in her thirties. Her roommate is twenty something. She's getting all the parts. She's not getting the parts because she's too old or whatever. And it's her way of going past the young, basically outsmarting them and a little murders in there. Uh, and you know, as any tales from the crypt episode, yeah. there is a comeuppance twist. So. Definitely check that out. Season That's four. That's totally on theme. Yeah, so season four yeah. of Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. You always it's come the, with these great recommendations that are so outside of the box, but like perfectly on theme. Yeah, well, and if you want to know the Crypt Keeper, his little intro, he's basically working out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I keep Boils, Foils and ghouls. All right, so I have three recommendations, and they're all very different. I did mention Arrow Video, Blood and Black Lace, Blu-ray. There's audio commentary by a gentleman named Tim Lucas. The commentary was just so well done and knowledgeable. I just did a little research on the guy. I'm like, wow, like what has he done? You know, what makes him such a expert on Mario Baba? Well, turns out the guy wrote an amazing biography on Mario Baba. It's called All the Colors of the Night. It's a really well done biography. While you're quarantined, get the ebook. I hate that it's called that because we all know the better name is Bavography. <laughs> Thank Maybe you. Maybe next Thank time. Or, Maybe the or, next time. Or like Mario Bava, more like Mario Brava. <laughs> or if you're, or I want, I, before you go on, I have to talk about my, what, uh, my autocorrect on my, my phone did for us at Blood and Black Place Notes. Yeah. Uh, my, my phone autocorrected to blood and baklava. So. That would be a great short. I mean, it could be a full length feature. Blood and baklava. <laughs> like a Middle Eastern jalo. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It writes itself. Love is it. There, is there a Middle Eastern jalo inspired movie? I think, I think your fans should let us know. I would love to watch one of those. Yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of movies, my next flavor of the month is a film called Crimson Peak from 2015. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's a gothic romance that has really beautiful set pieces and costuming. It's gorgeous, and that's why I'm recommending it, because I think Blood and Black Lace is a very beautiful film. Crimson Peak is all about the style. And my last flavor of the month is kind of a broad suggestion of something to check out it is a fashion house called rodarte it's 
two sisters that created this fashion line. They started going to college to become costume designers and film. They figured that wasn't for them. So now they have their own high fashion like couture line. It's very heavily influenced by cinema. They did the costume designs for Black Swan. So if you've seen that film from a few years ago with Natalie Portman, the dance costumes at the end are by Rodarte. It's hard to look at their movie Woodshock without thinking of Jennifer Connelly's character in Phenomena because all of their all the costuming in that film is very white and virginal and kind of mimics her character. They currently have an exhibit in DC at the Museum of Women in the Arts. I'm not sure if this was on purpose or not, but I feel like it reflects their love of Baba films and Blood and Black Lace in particular because all of the mannequins are red and boldly colored and then they have their designs and the mannequins are dressed in Rodarte's designs. So you can't look at these mannequins and not think Blood and Black Lace. It has not been confirmed nor denied if that was their inspiration, but I'm going to take it as yes, they love cinema. And I know that they love old cinema, so I'm sure they're probably fans of Bava as well. And I will even post some photos from when I went to that exhibit a little bit over a year ago. I visited it, and it was awesome. So those are my flavors of the month. I have a book for you to read, a movie for you to watch, and then some fashion for you to look at. And I have a measly episode of a show that aired almost 30 years ago. Is there anything that you would like to plug or promote? Yes. Uh, last time I was on here, I was telling you guys that I was working on a, I was on post-production for the new short film that we've done on Mikadish Productions. Well, it's out. It came out on February 2nd or 3rd, one of those days. Um, it's called Laugh Till You Die. It's only a nine minute short. It's on Vimeo, vimeo.com slash Mikadish Productions and YouTube, youtube.com slash Mikadish Productions. We mostly want all of our short, uh, traffic to go towards Vimeo because, you know, YouTube's full of, like, you know, a lot of al- restrictions and algorithms. Yeah. They're like, oh, you have to watch 15 minutes of it. To, you know, it's weird algorithms, but I'll say definitely check it out on our Vimeo page. Uh, we actually became semi-finalists at the uh, the Couch uh, Film Festival, so check that out. Um, uh, Meteor King, my band Meteor King Wise, our most recent show in April got canceled because of the coronavirus, but we have some positive news. We are going to be in the Horror Punk USA compilation. It's 62 bands. Uh, we're on the third version of the compilation. All three volumes are going to be out at the same time. So we're going to be on that. So it's a pretty big honor. Me personally, Suede Guy at Instagram. And my letterbox, which I have now been using a lot more, it's Suede MCP. That is Suede MCP. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, of course, plug all of your stuff in the liner notes for this episode. I do want to apologize to the listeners because at the beginning of the year, I talked about all these great plans I had to go to all these film festivals, and I was supposed to go to South by Southwest, Overlook Film Festival, Maryland Film Festival, a few other film festivals in between. Well, all of those got postponed or canceled. With the current health regulations and current state of what's going on with coronavirus, I don't know when those festivals will be postponed to, so I did just want to apologize, everyone, if you're waiting for an episode on these film festivals. It's a bit of a bummer, but I'm glad that people are staying safe and they're taking this virus seriously. Yeah. 
other than festival content, you can listen to Jollo Month Club every month. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Jollo Club. You can follow myself, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Diana NK. The logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. You can find Matt's Etsy shop at Retirement Fund. The theme music is by Musician Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. And since you should be self-isolating and you should be at home, if you could take a moment, go into your favorite podcast platform and leave a glowing review for Jollo the Month Club. It helps get the word out to other Jollo fans, other horror fans. This episode may be some fashion fans. If you're listening and you like what you hear, why not click the like button or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening to this very fashion-themed episode of Jollo the Month Club. As always, I'm your host, Diana. And I am Wade!